Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Richal Mehta will be joining Jasmine. And Richal works with Vegan Outreach in India. And there they are spreading awareness about veganism. A lot of their work is in colleges. They have this 10 Weeks to Vegan program. But they're also working with businesses and organizations to increase their vegan offerings in cafeterias. I think, you know, India really is on fire. I mean, there's a history there of care for animals and and organizations are really stepping it up. It's kind of exciting. Yeah, I loved this interview. It was super interesting. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Richa. If you're a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up. Or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on, you guessed it, the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have some very inspiring guests and some truly excellent conversations about activism and life in general. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out that Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. You can also set up one-on-one conversations with me if you're in the Flock by emailing Jen at jen at ourhenhouse.org and she'll set that up, which I think would be really fun. I want to meet you. I mean, I think I want to meet you. (laughs) Very cautious today. Yeah, I'm feeling cautious. Maybe I want to meet you. Maybe I don't. Speaking of things we're cautious about, We have never had anyone from the group Farm Forward on our henhouse, obviously, because our missions just don't align and they're not a vegan organization. However, they do have a new survey out that I think was pretty interesting and definitely worth our chatting about. What do you think? You know, I don't even know whether Farm Forward would want to come on the podcast for one thing. And for another thing, it's not like, I mean, they are an animal organization. It's the one founded uh, partly by Jonathan Safran Four. But, you know, they're all about humane farming and humane certification. Also about, you know, cutting down the number of animals you eat, but not exactly aligned with our passion for for taking the, the full vegan approach. And this article, uh, Farm Forward Survey Reveals Widespread Confusion About Welfare Labels, is just a terrific, terrific survey that they did that has revealed exactly what we would all expect. And as they point out, the survey results indicate that the majority of Americans have been misled by deceptive marketing tactics used by meat producers and retailers about animal welfare. Not even remotely surprising. They're talking about terms like cage-free as well as the the labels, you know, the industry-backed labels like One Health Certified and American Humane Certified and uh, Whole Foods Global Animal Partnership Certification Program. And they just, you know, I mean, uh, like it's so unsurprising, but it's so great to have it confirmed that people think these labels mean so much more than they do. And as they point out, they have have long advocated for certification as a means to improve welfare conditions for farmed animals. That's one of their missions. But this is a quote. We have become increasingly concerned that even the most scrupulous certifications cause confusion and create a false sense among consumers that many animal products available in supermarkets align with their values. Yeah, and you know, they're perfectly willing to to do the do the work and find this out and admit it. People believe what they want to believe. But it's stamp on something. And if people want to believe it means something great, they will, uh, especially when somebody's trying to sell it to them. 
just a couple of the things that they found out. The survey indicates that many Americans equate, quote, high animal welfare and other welfare terminology with animals being raised on pasture. Well, that's not surprising. I mean, that's what's in all the pictures. That's what, that, how could it be good welfare if, they, if they're not going outside? 45% of Americans believe that all labels that certify high welfare need to ensure that animals are raised continuously on pasture. But we all know that they don't. They don't mean anything like that. As they point out, none of the labels guarantee it. Most of them are not even close. They talk about about the, um, this has always driven me crazy, the whole food certification. You know, they have these five different levels. Steps four, five, and five plus indicate that animals are, are raised on pasture. But apparently, I mean, I've never actually looked for them, but apparently it's very, very hard to find these kinds of uh, meat in, in their stores. And if they do, I'm sure they're crazy expensive. But, you know, that's what consumers think because that's what consumers want to think. So, yeah, they've kind of just, uh, good for them. They have blown the lid off of uh, humane washing here and uh, really, really useful information. Because we're always saying things like that. But, you know, it's nice to have a little evidence that's actually true. Yeah, I was going to say, I love being right, but I also hate <laughs> being right, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. well, I'm glad that this exists so that we can point to it. So we'll include it in the show notes and that way you can point to it. So let's talk about this article from Time magazine, because for the first time, China has included cultivated meat as part of its blueprint for food security going forward. Tell us about this. Yeah, this is kind of on the other front. Do we go for humane certification? Uh, the answer from Farm Forward is uh, a lot of problems there. Or do we go for vegan and or cultivated? I don't know whether you call cultivated meats vegan. I don't know. This is like a big, big answer in that we go for plant-based and cultivated. China puts out these five-year plans, so they've put out their five-year agricultural plans, and they have a very top-down economy. And, you know, what they what the government says they're going to do, they do. And it's, it's not quite the Wild West the way it is here. And as this article points out, for the first time, China included cultivated meats and other, quote, future foods like plant-based eggs as part of its blueprint for food security going forward. And, you know, this is going to be huge because, because not only will it be huge if China, for China itself, because China is, I, I, I assume it's the world's biggest food market. It's the world's biggest producer of global greenhouse gases, um, which is the huge incentive for them doing this. So I should add, that doesn't mean per capita. I think we're per capita the highest one, but, but they have really a lot of people. It's a really huge country. So they, they have to do something about it. But the thing is, I'm, I'm digressing. The thing is, it's so important. Aside from that is the money. If China starts sinking money into these foods, that will give these companies the ability to grow huge and to start marketing themselves all over the world. And as Josh Tetrick pointed out, who's probably all excited about this because he, he is the CEO of Eat Just, which of course produces plant-based eggs. China is far and away the largest consumer of eggs and meat in the world. So incorporating plant-based eggs and cultivated meat into the country's five-year plan is a significant indicator of what's to come. Yeah, I, I think they're going to go into this in a big way. It just makes total sense for them. On the greenhouse gas and on the food security issue, you know, they have so many problems with food poisoning or they have in the past. And then, you know, there's just increasing awareness as much as the industry tries to hide it of the connection between disease and, and animals and as a result, factory farming. 
This is a quote from Mircea Gosker, who works for the Good Food Institute. By including game-changing food technologies like cultivated meat, China's national leaders are saying publicly what others around the world have long hoped, that China intends to go all in on building the future of food. This is this is huge. This is huge. This could change, be a big changer. Just imagine, like, if they start sinking money into this, all of these companies and their competitors and their the new enter, entries into the market are just going to get bigger and bigger. And, you know, when they get bigger, they can spend more money here to kind of counter all of the propaganda put out by the meat industry. Well, turning our gaze to Chile, uh, not a giant news story, but a big news story as far Should as we're concerned. Should be a giant news story. Should be. You might remember Soledad Rablito. She is a flock member who you had on during our intro section a few months back when we were chatting with her about some news going on in Chile. We can link to that in the show notes. Anyway, so she wrote to us, at, uh, and I, I'll just get to that. She said, I have some good news. Our constitutional proposal, subjects, not objects, has gathered the requested 15,000 digital signatures. This initiative wants to include the animals as legal persons in the new constitution, which is being written out in Chile. Now subjects, not objects approval will be discussed in February by the elected citizens who are working on the Carta Magna. It's worth noting that around 2000 proposals have been sent by individuals and social justice groups, but only 15 initiatives have been given the requested number of signatures so far. That's some pretty big news. Yeah, no, this is this is really big news. I mean, they're writing a new constitution. Crazy that the people in charge of it are elected citizens. Like, I really need to know more about this whole process. It sounds really, really good. But anyway, like, people are actually allowed to participate. Imagine that. And uh, 2,000 proposals and only 15 made it. They got to pay attention to this. Maybe they won't do it. I, I don't know what the requirements are. Do they have to accept it as written? Can they fool with it? I don't know. But we will have to stay on top of this and, and see what happens. Well, this has been quite the global conversation in the last few minutes anyway. And speaking of which, I think we should get to our interview today. Absolutely. Richa Mehta is the Director of Programs with Vegan Outreach India, where she works to spread awareness about veganism in colleges with their 10 Weeks to Vegan program, and works with businesses and organizations to increase their vegan offerings in cafeterias with their Green Tuesday program. She has led several investigations in Rajasthan, India, exposing cruelty to farm animals in the poultry and dairy industries, and has worked with Greenpeace India and the Federation of Indian Animals Protection Organizations. She is also the founder of the Pratibha Foundation, which supports children and mothers in need. And she will be joining Jasmine right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our henhouse, Richa. We're so excited to have you. Thank you, Jasmine. To get started, first, please tell our listeners where you are right now. 
I'm in India. I live in Agra, where the Taj Mahal is. You can recognize my city from this monument. Currently, I'm sitting in a car because there's lots of background noise inside my house. So, yeah. <laughs> you gotta <laughs> but love, peaceful. Yeah, you got to love Zoom and just re- remote recordings where uh, people record from is always is always kind of interesting to me. So I have a lot to chat with you about. I'm very interested in the work you're doing. And to get us started, can you please tell our listeners what is the 10 Weeks to Vegan program? So Jasmine, 10 Weeks to Vegan program is a guided email series. This email series basically gives you all the information that you need to move your vegan transition in 10 weeks. Every week you get one email. And each email contains really helpful information like nutrition tips, recipes, then how you can talk to your family and friends about you going vegan. All the points are covered in this 10 weeks and it will make your transition as smooth as possible. Well, I think that's super cool, the step-by-step nature of it. And I'm always more and more interested in various types of advocacy efforts and the demographics that these efforts are focusing on. Do you focus on colleges? Yes. So in India, our outreach program specifically focus on colleges. We only work with college students. We Every year we reached out to hundreds of colleges and we educate students about atrocities that's happening in dairy and meat industry, why going vegan is helpful for environment, all the myths that, you know, usually people have about veganism. So we help with that. So why do you focus on colleges in your efforts? We believe and research has shown that young people aged between 16 to 35, they are more flexible. They are they actually take their decisions on their own, specifically diet-related decisions. Plus, they do have compassion for animals. They want to do something for environment. They actually want to do things that, you know, change the situations in society. They want to bring some change. And mm-hmm. going vegan is, the you know, one of the best way you can do it. That's why we are mainly reaching out to colleges and students. Yeah, I agree with you that the, you know, Older teens, younger 20s, they tend to be a lot more open to change. I myself went vegan at that time. Well, I went vegetarian at that time and then ultimately vegan Mm -hmm. shortly thereafter. But why is that? Why do you think that college students are so much more receptive to the message about what's happening to animals? One of the reasons behind that is that that is the age when you started forming your opinion. So they are not... They don't have any opinion strongly form it by by that time. They are learning things. They are open to new knowledge. They want to try new things. So they are not very uh, close-minded when it comes to new things. They definitely want to do something for society, for you know other species apart from humans. So I think that's the reason that you know they are more uh, receptive about veganism or doing something out of the box for children or for women, like taking good actions. Yes, 
I agree. I, I I think it's it's something that I find a lot of hope in, even when when the rest of the world gets me down. I realize that there are people who are listening, even if they might not be in front of me at that moment. I'm curious how COVID has changed the way you pursue your campaign. It actually affected a lot because uh, before the whole pandemic thing, we used to go to these colleges. We used to do lots of in-person outreach. We used to organize events. We used to set up virtual reality tables event. And, you know, uh, we used to do lots of presentations, in-person presentations in these colleges. But because of COVID, all those things, we had to, you know, shut it down because colleges are shut down and it's not uh, very safe going out there. It definitely uh, was a big hit to our campaigns and the programs that we are running. But at the same time, as I shared, that these are college students, young generation, they are very receptive and very flexible with the you know new things. So uh, many students and most of the colleges have started using online platforms like Zoom and uh, Microsoft. That was one of the way we overcome the barrier that we had. The colleges were shut down and we could not go to the colleges. We started doing webinars. Surprisingly, we found out that webinars are even more effective than in-person outreach. Because when you are doing outreach in open environment, there are lots of distractions. Other people are there and there are other external factors like too much heat, too much cold. It took lots of time, like conducting one outreach event used to take somewhere around six to eight hours. And here, one webinar usually takes 60 minutes to 80 minutes. And during that time, you get all the attention from all those students. Like they are completely focused for 60 minutes. They are listening to you, every detail that you are sharing with them. In one webinar, at present, we are reaching out to more than 300 students. It's actually, we are, you know, doing more with less time and less effort. So I think there was definitely some, you know, impact and uh, initial challenges. But uh, there was a silver line. And currently, actually, we are doing more than what we used to do before pandemic. Mm. So, yeah. I think it's really cool how our society has shifted to basically find the opportunities Mm. within COVID, like, you know, workplaces, obviously, but also activism. I think we, we as vegan advocates have really risen to the occasion and found more and more ways of being effective. And I know that the work you do is very focused on measuring effectiveness. So can you tell me a little bit about the results you've seen as a result of your efforts? Before I go to that, I would like to, you know, share this thing that we definitely have to find out ways to continue our work despite all the challenges and especially people who are working for animals. Because personally, I believe that animals are most suppressed and, you know, they can't actually speak for themselves. So it's a bigger responsibility that we have and we can't let ourselves believe in this thing that, okay, we can't do this or this is the challenge and we have to stop doing something because of this thing. Yeah, I agree with you that we should and uh, we did actually. So that's that's really amazing. 
coming to your question i have been doing outreach since a long time and i find outreach very one of the very effective methods when you have to communicate your message and especially when you are doing grassroots outreach the kind of outreach that we do you are actually passing your message more effectively because there is a person in front of you you are having an actual conversation with them in 2021 we reached out to 40000 students through our college outreach program through only webinars we reached out to more than 350 colleges and we conducted more than 150 plus webinars every day we get so many emails so we we also have one feedback form that we shared with all the webinar participants 92% of our webinar participants said uh, you know said that uh, they would like to try vegan diet for environment and animals and 87% of our participants said that uh, whatever is happening to these animals in poultry or dairy industry it's actually wrong and it should stop and they would like to go vegan if that you know if that can be any help we are not only asking people to take action but we are also offering them a solution i think it's very important in any outreach because when you talk to someone when you explain the problem when you tell them that see this is happening to these animals this is happening in this industry so then at the end of that entire conversation you need to offer them a solution or you know give them something so 10 weeks to vegan program is that tool through which they can take action uh they just don't agree at the point that yeah this is wrong but they can also do something to change what is wrong more and more students are going vegan every day we get email where people says students says that they are feeling amazing they thought that going vegan is very difficult but now with the tips that i'm we are getting and information that we have now we believe that it's not that hard i feel amazing when every time i read those emails and they are uh, great uh, great mm-hmm. to hear how you know your effort is making impact Absolutely. I I mean I think you have gone about everything you're doing so thoughtfully and intentionally and I love that you're so receptive to changing. Tell us about the Green Tuesday campaign. This is another campaign we have, Green Tuesday initiative. At one side while we are working with students, we are inspiring them, motivating them to go vegan. At the same time, we are also working with colleges and companies. to reduce their animal products consumption uh, in the cafeteria when we started green tuesday initiative we started at a very small scale we used to reach out to restaurants and asking them to add more vegan items on the menu right now it is big it's actually getting bigger and bigger last year we partnered with tech mahindra which is one of the global it giant they committed that they will reduce 20% of their animal product consumption every year we are reaching out to more and more companies bigger companies uh, college campuses in 2021 we partnered with eight companies and colleges despite of the pandemic this covid situation and so far since we have started uh, green tuesday initiative we partnered with more than 29 institutions 92% of our institution renewed their uh, pledges 
it's amazing how uh, reducing one animal product once a week you can bring such a huge impact yeah i totally agree i i was looking at some of the successes you've had and it's it's very impressive when you pursue a green tuesday goal do you mostly rely on arguments regarding the environment rather than animal welfare can you tell us a little bit more about your approach here with companies and colleges we have to be little bit tricky we have to tweak our messages a little bit because you know companies and mainly institutions they want to be politically correct they don't want to impose anything on their employees and students so yes we do predominantly talk about environment we do talk about animal also but that is only where we can see that the company has you know some of their csr goals aligning with animal welfare or in that area otherwise we usually stick with environment talking about environment because we in past we tried pitch about uh, animal abuse and the situations of farm animals in dairy and meat industry but that did not work out so yeah in most cases more than 95% cases we talk about environment well so i'm curious about that you have done a factory farm investigation or factory farm investigations plural yeah. in the past can you tell us about that because i i would love to know a little bit more about why in light of your factory farm investigations you are still focusing on the environment as the main approach in my factory farm investigation i found out that there are lots of wrong things happening with these animals but when we try to show it to institutions and companies they come up with this argument that okay then you know tell us where we can procure this product in a humane way or where the animal welfare standards are higher at that point of time the whole reduction thing that goes aside and companies are started having this conversation that you know, you are right that this is happening wrong so give us an option from where we can get it in a better way so we don't want to take them to you know that line uh, on that track we want to keep them on the track that you know reduction is always better option and when they start reducing once a week we regularly work with them we do several events in a year with them we try to increase that once a week to twice a week or thrice a week so that's the one of the reason that we don't talk about animals many time the person who is talking to us the representative of that institutions they get they get offended they end up with this argument that we can't ask our employees or you know we can't impose this thing on our employees that you shouldn't eat meat or eggs or because there is a freedom to eat whatever they want to eat and we don't want to start this whole argument so right. when we talk about environment the plus point is that mainly most of the companies they have their csr targets and they are aligned to do something for environment so when we talk about the water footprint of chicken or eggs or the ghg emission that happen with that there is there is more possibility that they agreed with it so that's the you know main reason that we don't talk about animals condition with institutions opposite to that when we talk to students 
we only talk about conditions of animals on dairy farms and poultry farms because there it's an individual choice. Here it's a little different. I understand that strategically, and I, I'm always fascinated by how different groups go about that. You know, it's it's always a little painful for me personally to separate my personal ideology from strategy because I often think that the animals sort of get left on the side. But if the goal is for us to advocate uh, more vegan choices and people are making those choices, obviously it's going to help animals in the end, but sometimes it it pains me. How do you feel about that? Like as someone who clearly cares about animals, where do you fall on this? I completely agree. You know, I completely relate with you because when I started this program initially, my entire focus was on highlighting that the animal cruelty and what is happening to farm animals. I reached out to so many institutions. I had so many conversations and the result was not something that we were expecting. So personally, I actually feel very bad when I could not talk about animals because that is the real thing that is happening every day. And as an animal rights activist, I want to, like, you know, I want to tell them that, see, this is happening in the poultry farm farm from where you are procuring your eggs, or this is happening in a dairy farm from where you are procuring your milk. But when you want to create big impact, when you look at the bigger picture, you have to compromise with your personal beliefs. And every time I have this conversation with my team, my campaign team, we talk about it and we tried something new, but we have to come back to the environment. So it's it's sad and we all feel bad about it. But the good part is that, okay, this is what you want to hear, hear it, but, you know, do something for animals. So yeah. we are actually making huge impact. In 2021 only, we were able to reduce 336,000 kg of meat. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate this conversation though, because I think especially for listeners of this podcast, it, it validates something for us. Like I personally don't know if you can work in the institutional animal protection movement without having to sacrifice some kind of ideology because it isn't about us. It's not about our personal ideology. It's about strategy. And every single activist I interview has that exact same bottom line and that's what winds up working. That's what winds up resonating. So I appreciate the fact that you also see it that way and that your team also sees it that way and that you very strategically go about your advocacy efforts in the way you do. I would also like to add one thing, Jasmine, here is that this is not only when we are working with institutions or, you know, reduction campaigns. This is very individual also because I'm a vegan. And when I see a non-vegan person, my first instinct or the first feeling that I feel is that tell that person that, you know, you're doing bad, you know, this is you're doing to these animals, you should do something. But We should keep that approach aside. We should be more welcoming. We should understand from where that person is coming because nobody born vegan. All of us were non-vegans before we turned vegan. So I think this, you know, keeping your personal feeling aside for better impact, for, you know, betterment of animals, doing something for animals 
you should also practice it individually as well, uh, not only in campaign strategies, but by being more approachable or by being more welcoming. If you are making someone understand what is happening to animals and making that person feel that, okay, going vegan is not difficult, you also can go vegan. So I think it will change a lot for animals in a long run. Really, really good perspective. I think that people in the West are often confused about the status of cows in India. You often hear people saying that (laughs) that cows are sacred in India, but we also know that there is a very big dairy industry and a great deal of dairy consumption. I expect that this is a more complex question than most of us here understand. So would you be so kind as to unpack this for us? Sure. Status of cow in India is definitely very sacred and holy. We believe that 33 million gods actually, you know, resides in cow. Everything that we believe that it's very sacred and holy and we can consume it or we should use it. However, it's when it comes to practicing that, because the entire dairy industry as you already know that, you know, uh, once the cow has stopped giving milk, they, they sent for slaughter. But here in India, because cows are sacred and uh, slaughtering them is illegal. So people usually, you know, leave them on road. You see, like, you know, you see so many cows in India roaming around on road. They are eating garbage. Most of the cows died because of eating plastic. They died very horrible death. They died of starvation. And it's very slow and very painful. So I say that we believe cow is holy, uh, that we want to believe. When we don't want to see cows in that way, we usually ignore them. Mainly religious thing, but not really in practice. People don't treat cows in that they they've been treated even worse than garbage so yeah yeah Uh, cognitive dissonance is so confusing vegetarianism has always been tied to religion in india and as a result there is a vibrant vegetarian culture i actually small side note i grew up in edison new jersey which is the, has the mm. most the, the biggest Indian population outside of India. Yes. So I feel very a, a strong tie to India in a way because I went I just went to all the festivals yeah. and like all my friends were of Indian descent. But again, this idea that vegetarianism is tied to religion in India is obviously more complex than people in the West understand because certainly not all who practice Hinduism are vegetarian. Can you tell us a bit about this background of vegetarianism and how it fits with modern vegetarian and vegan practices in India? India is a like very big country. We have many languages, many cultures and people from all religions and, you know, caste and groups. Definitely it's true when you say that not all the Hindus are vegetarian. So we can't say that if someone is Hindu, then that person is vegetarian. Different Hindu people follow different diet. Many Hindus in southern part of India, they are non-vegetarian. And many Hindus in north part of India, they are also non-vegetarian. 
we can't say that someone is hindu and that person must be vegetarian another interesting thing which is happening right now is more and more young generation irrespective of whatever uh, religion they belongs to they are going non vegetarian we can see more kfc outlets we can see more youngsters eating non vegetarian food because somehow i i mean i think it's a kind of a status symbol or it's cool if you are non vegetarian if you are eating chicken and meat so more and more young people are going non vegetarian and it doesn't matter whatever religion they belong to plus when any religion when you choose your diet on based of your religion or any religion ask you to you know do something because it is there in the religion most of the time it's manipulated or misconception if you look at the root of hinduism like in hinduism there is nowhere anywhere it is written that you have to consume milk or you have to consume ghee or you have to consume cottage cheese it's all manipulation which is added later on there is no guarantee that someone is hindu and that person is vegetarian Do you think that arguments regarding animal welfare have more traction in India than in other places? I think it's definitely appealing because when you are saying animal welfare there is a flexibility what you are eating you can simply say that okay these eggs that I'm eating are free range or there are people who gave me this argument that okay we consume milk but our cow are our cows and buffaloes are kept in a very humane environment and we are only taking milk when their babies are completely fed this is personally i feel that somewhere it's diluting the fact that animals are not for our consumption we should not exploit them or you know we should not consume anything that belongs to them so animal welfare has a more traction in india but i think in long term a veganism or complete abolition of consuming animals is the only way we can change what is happening this answer your question yeah i think so i i think that it depends it depends on who you're asking about does animal welfare have more traction in this place versus that place it depends on so many different variables that it is almost unfair to just like make a blanket statement like that saying Yes, of course it is because people in India care about cows and therefore animal welfare has more traction because there's a lot of people mm. in India. So I don't think that one can make that. Sadly that's not it's not happening because mm-hmm. people think cows are holy. There are lots of, you know, lots of factors involved in this. Every person has his own reason to go for that. So yeah. Switching gears, can you tell me about the I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly but can you tell me about the Pratibha Foundation? Uh, yes, so Pratibha Foundation is a non-profit that I started I and one of my friends started in 2011. The main purpose of starting that non-profit was to, you know, help children in their education mainly underprivileged children. but at present we are also working with women lives in a suburban and slum area we when we were in college we we used to volunteer with other non profits and there is this place the small village called dena it was nearby our university 
So we used to go there and do several activities like cleaning the streets and building playground for children, awareness sessions, workshop, etc. So there was one day we, we went there and there was like lots of crowd in a common hall and, you know, we were wondering what is happening. So we found out that there was this girl, she was only 14 year old and she was getting married. And there was some people from some other nonprofit, they were there, they called police and, you know, they were trying to stop the marriage. Then we had this conversation with uh, other children in the village and they said that, okay, this is the one that they find out. And that's why this is, you know, happening. But there were so many of our friends who got married at such a small age and nobody did nothing about that. So I think, you know, that was the moment when we inspired to do something. So we thought that, you know, if education is more easily accessible and if quality is there, then these kind of things might be avoided. That was the reason we started it. At present, we have more than 300 children associated with us. They, they study in our after-school centers. We have two after-school centers. And at present, we have more than 500 women working with us. So uh, they are working on various livelihood projects and earning some part-time money. Can yeah. you tell me about the project that is part of the Pratiba Foundation called Facing a Pandemic? Yes, we have two projects. One is School for Kids by Youth. The short form is Sky. So our Sky School is basically volunteer-run program. We get interns and volunteers from all around the world. They spend time there. There is a specific period internship they have to complete. And they interact with these children. They teach them. They teach them new things, new things about their culture. They help them with their academics. So when this whole pandemic thing happened, all of our school, the after-school centers are shut down. And again, you know, we uh, moved to online. However, here it was as easy as college students because these children, they are very, they are from very poor family. They don't have mobile phones. They don't have internet data. Many of these children, they don't have electricity also. So for a significant time, somewhere around five, six months, when there was a very strict lockdown, we could not do anything. We distributed food during that time because most of these children's parents are daily wage workers and they were not earning anything. So we collaborated with volunteer groups with companies and we distributed grains and flour and oil, whatever they need to at least get them some food. So we created we, we created these kits and uh, we distributed them. We tried to distribute all these foods vegan. However, there were times where we got some already ready-made food and that wasn't vegan, but that was given by someone else prepared by someone else so we could not do anything about that but most of the time whatever food we distributed are vegan during this five six months we distributed more than thirty thousand meals in total to the families of these children 
the another program that we have is swa self welfare women association our project that was going on which was helping this woman to earn some part time money was uh, also shut down unfortunately we could not do anything much about that but what surprisingly happening was that number of domestic violence cases were increasing drastically during this period because people were losing their job and they were in the house all the time so we helped so many women were facing such abuse we tried to communicate with them as frequent as possible via mobile or whatever means that available to us and we counsel them we organize once there were some restrictions eased up we organize workshop and help women in that so during the covid time our main focus was on domestic violence with this women Oh, yes. that's that's a lot. <laughs> you have you have centered your <laughs> life around quite intense subject matters. I guess my final question for you, Richa, which before the flock bonus interview that is, because I'd love to pick your brain just a little bit more when we're done with this. But my final question for you here is: given everything that you have talked about on this podcast interview, given the animal protection work you're doing, the fact that you need to sort of shift around your strategy and maybe your heart's calling, given the project that you started in college and the all of the intensity that is faced with that, given the pandemic and how it's impacted India, given everything, what gives you hope? Honestly, every time when I get these emails from... that's really you know that gives me hope when every time i talk to you know these women and when they say that we are hopeful you know that we'll do something once all this will over many time it happened that we were demotivated and they said that you know don't demotivate if bad time is here then good time will also come that motivates me and every time when i when i see these children they are going to school or you know any life any life that has been changed because of me any life that inspires me and most of all you know my team at vegan outreach all of them they are so amazing whenever i talk to them there wasn't a single moment when they said that that this won't happen they never say that they always say that we'll do it so i think you know my team all those people they are so amazing all of them are animal rights activists i always learn something new from them so dedicated and i think yeah that's that keeps me going <laughs> i love that always that's very beautiful yeah, and yeah. also very inspiring all the work you're doing is really incredible uh, can you tell our listeners how they can find you online and support your efforts If you want to know more about 10 weeks to vegan program you can log on to www.10weekstovegan.in that's the website we have recently launched it's amazing website and you will find lots of information on that to know more about vegan outreach you can uh, follow us on facebook and instagram our handle is vegan outreach india on both the platforms you can find us there for green tuesday initiative if you want to know more about it please visit our website www. 
greentuesday.org. You'll find lots of information. We have also uploaded lots of free resources. And we are also going to launch a handbook that will help individuals if they want to implement Green Tuesday initiative or do something similar in their company or college. You'll find all these information there. What Vegan Outreach is doing everywhere. We are working in so many countries. We are launching personalized 10 weeks to vegan series for each country. Already, we have launched more than 33 versions of 10 Weeks to Vegan series. So if you want to know more about it, if you want to know, if you want to get enrolled in your country's 10 Weeks to Vegan program, you can log on to www.veganoutreach.org and you'll find all the information on that. I am not a very social media person. (laughs) Uh I'm not on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn name is Richa Mehta. So you can find me there if you have any other questions, if you want to know more about the work that we do. And last but not the least, so much like a really long list. (laughs) Sorry, last but not the least, if you want to know more about Pratibha Foundation, Pratibha Foundation is like Vegan Outreach everywhere. You can find it on Facebook with the name of Pratibha Foundation on Instagram. And you can also visit the website www.pratibhangio.org. Richard, thank you so much for all that you do. Please hang on the line with me so I can chat with you for our bonus content. But thank you so much for everything. And I look forward to staying on top of your future efforts and follow closely as you change the world for animals. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for inviting me. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety's arising. Well, the the PR campaigns against the the likes of Impossible and Beyond Meat and the rest are in are they're shifting into high gear. Obviously, severe anxieties arising about the competition these foods present. All right, our first story for the day is from the Independent in the UK. Why vegan meat substitutes are the worst junk food of all. <laughs> like, the worst. Apparently, they're worse for you than jelly beans. I don't know. What's the, what's the actual worst junk food of all? All right, this is by one Xanthi Clay. And the subtitle here is, It's possible to eat a healthy vegan diet, but many of the meat substitutes aren't healthy at all. Okay, it's possible. Possible. You'll be glad to hear that. All right, she starts off by saying, it's the cynical greed that gets me. Turn on primetime television or allow the ads to slide onto your YouTube and every food processor and retailer seems to be cashing in on the veganuary movement, pushing their products as healthy and virtuous. Wow, anxieties are really are really flaring up over there in the UK. Veganuary is really doing it. So uh, she points out, she does take a step back. Giving up animal products altogether isn't for me, 
But few would disagree that as a nation, we should be eating less meat and more vegetables. Well, that's fair of you. While there are persuasive arguments that pasture-based free-range meat can have positive effects on the planet, well, you know, they're not persuasive, Anthony, I'm sorry. But she does then say, avoiding intensively farmed meat makes good sense. Well, you know, that's pretty much all the meat, so maybe you better, like, get used to eating vegetables. The problem is, while it's possible to eat a healthy vegan diet with care and vitamin B12 supplements, many of these vegan meat substitutes are meat analogs, as they are known in the industry aren't healthy at all. In fact, she says they fall into the category of ultra-processed food. That is a term that I have seen so much from the meat industry. Uh, you know, like I'm sure they're processed food. As, as I have pointed out many times, I consider all animal-based foods to be processed because it's perfectly good vegetables processed through the body of an animal. But, you know, these are processed. I Like what does processed even mean? Uh, you know, as we, cooking is processing. But ultra-processed food, this is her definition, comes in a packet and includes ingredients and processes you wouldn't use at home. <laughs> okay, what the hell does that mean? Does it depend on what home you come from? And then she does point to, in particular, flavors. You don't want your food to have any flavors. I guess she means artificial flavors. Colors, sweeteners, emulsifiers, and other additives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Oh, in other words, products, I hesitate to call them food that are manipulated to fool us, to make ingredients seem more appetizing or longer lasting or somehow, you know, she's talking about food. Impossible and Beyond Meat did not invent the food that is sold in the supermarket, like all of it. But apparently only now is this raising to a crisis because this these two particular foods, none, none of which are things that most people would say you should uh, be eating all the time, are a threat to somebody, I wonder who. While a grilled chicken breast would count as minimally processed, or possibly processed if you include a bit of salt and oil. Oh my God. And then she goes on and on and on and on. And, and talking about how they call them plant-based or plant chef or plant kitchen. She hates them using this word plant because plants are so good for you. Uh, what next? Plant-based jam? Why wouldn't plant-based jam be plant? Oh, she's, she's, oh, she's worrying about Foods being called plant-based that have always been plant-based. Well, so what? You know, people don't necessarily know that. That lovely word plant has a whiff of nature, countryside, health, fresh air, natural leafiness. And so she hates that uh, these, these ultra-processed foods are using this virtuous term plant. And she actually contends, she's talking about factory farm footage, a film showing the industrialized process that goes into making the textured vegetable protein in vegan sausages or the vats growing citric acid, the acidity regulator in many processed foods, would be equally stomach churning. Well, I think not. I really think not. Like all of a sudden, industrial food is this. All right, if you want to eat totally whole foods, like go for it. I'm all for it. But they didn't just get invented, and uh, these foods are trying to compete with with other foods that are exactly as bad for you, and most of the time, much worse for you. She does point out that many of them are impressively accurate copies of meat junk food. So she guess she thinks there is such a thing as meat junk food, which means there's, but she thinks it's, they're worse because the, the article is that what is it? They're the worst food on the planet or something which means there's no earthly reason for an animal to be raised in cramped conditions to make turkey Twizzler when an indistinguishable product can be made out of soy protein. Well, thank you. That is true. But please don't kid yourself that this is health food. Well, nobody is. 
They're saying it's delicious food. That's why they're eating it. And then she goes into the whole soy issue about where they get their soy. Then you know these people are being fed industry propaganda. Uh, if they're more worried about the soy in these burgers, which don't even use a lot of soy, as opposed to the soy that goes into the animals that are turned into regular burgers. And then she she talks, these are the foods that she's got no beef with. Get it? A little play on words. Tofu, tempeh, seitan. Well, you know, I'm all for those foods too, but they're not selling quite as well. So they're not making you quite as hysterical, are they? All right. This next article sent to me by Julie sent a story, same deal, only on the environmental consequences of these foods. Boy, the industry is clearly in high gear on, in its PR. This is uh, from the Toronto Star. Those fake meat hamburgers might not be a planet saver after all. Uh, yeah, I'm actually not sure that in and of themselves they're going to save the planet. They could be part of that project um, if it's still possible to save the planet. This is talking about how these foods are seen as the best ways to to change your uh, footprint, eating better uh, for an individual to change their footprint. The best way to reduce your carbon footprint says Impossible Foods website. Limit global warming, halt the collapse of biodiversity, save wildlife, and ensure enough clean water for all of us is to ditch meat from animals. And uh, they're saying, well, maybe not. Can abandoning beef for fake meat save the planet? Some experts aren't convinced and say plant-based food manufacturers might not be as green as they appear. Cherry-picking metrics to make a marketing case. Yeah, like, like the experts from the meat industry would never do such a thing. And there's a complaint that they're focusing too much on CO2, that the soy and peas issue again, and the use of monoculture as if animal feed is not from monocultures. They do put a, some defenses in from impossible that they use soy far more efficiently. But, you know, basically it's just, you know, they're just trying to stir the pot. Like nobody's like this stuff is hard to keep track of. If people think that there's a question, they will, you know, just opt to like go for the thing that they've always done. And they probably won't get beyond the, the first paragraph. As this points out, processing a soybean or a pea to a faux meat burger is not a trivial exercise. Yeah, well, raising a cow isn't a trivial exercise either, and at least nobody's suffering. Uh, you know, and then far down in the article, there are some favorable uh, facts. Doesn't really help when you get there because nobody read them. All right. Our next story is uh, by our favorite, Hannah thompson Weeman from the Animal Agwatch column at meetingplace.com. And she's upset. And this is why charges dropped against DXE activist group still convert, quote unquote, converges in Iowa. And she is upset because one of the very anticipated trial of Matt Johnson, I mean, as you all know, if you've been listening to this podcast, who was facing a bunch of charges from various actions targeting Iowa select farms. I, you know, when he go, went in there, documented what, the disaster that was happening and rescued a piglet. And she does point out in a recent podcast, I wonder if that was us. That would be nice. Hi, Hannah. Um, Johnson outlined his intended defense strategy for the trial, which included invoking a, quote, necessity defense, claiming that he was justified in breaking the law to prevent a greater evil from happening. Yes, that's exactly what he did on, on our hen house. So, like, again, hi, Hannah. But as she points out, before the trial was set to begin, the judge granted the prosecutor's motion to dismiss all the charges. And she doesn't understand why. She says it's unclear, and she clearly thinks that Iowa Select Farms 
well, she wanted to go ahead. I don't know what she thinks about whether Iowa Select Farms didn't want to or not. I'm pretty sure Iowa Select Farms didn't want to. And that's exactly why the prosecutor moved to dismiss the charges. Iowa Select Farms, she says, responded by thanking local law enforcement for, quote, their commitment to upholding the law and protecting all county residents. Okay, well, they just, they they dismissed the charges, so I'm not sure what you mean by that. And noting that, quote, even though the case was dismissed, the fact an individual criminally trespassed on Iowa Select property does not change. Well, yeah, it kind of does, because like, if, if the prosecutor decided not to charge him, it's hard to say that he criminally trespassed. That would kind of be like a lie. DXC has, of course, she says, proclaimed this as a victory. Well, it kind of is. I mean, you got to admit, claiming that, quote, international media outlets had requested coverage and people from around the country were planning to attend the trial to support the right to rescue. And, you know, that probably did influence what was going to happen. Like uh, a bright light shown on these matters is uh, is not what they really want. They And they understood that this was going to be a bright light. She she points out that they are now using this victory as an opportunity to keep fighting ag-ag laws and defending the right to rescue. And I say, yeah, all right. And she talks about the fact that, you know, since they were all going to Iowa anyway, they did a bunch of protests. One of them was against in Iowa Falls, uh, and one of them was disrupt, quote unquote, disrupting an Iowa state senator who was also a hog farmer. <laughs> oh, you can't make this stuff up. And she points out that DXE recently announced it would be holding various similar convergences around the country in place of its annual Animal Liberation Conference, usually held in May. So that will be something to look forward to and to keep an eye on. But for now, that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our henhouse as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast. And to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.